ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Amelia Scott really loves her commute to work. Getting to work for Amelia means firing up her beloved Piper Arrow aircraft and taking to the skies. And flying through the sky on a clear morning, well, it's glorious. The sun rising, the air still fresh and cool, the red earth of the outback spread out down below. And when she lands, Amelia is busy doing what she loves, maybe checking the testicles of a mob of rams, giving a herd of cows pregnancy tests, helping a puppy dog with a sore tummy, or castrating a giant bull. Amelia is a vet, and her practice is a little different from most. It covers around 200,000 square kilometres from the Queensland border all the way down to Victoria. And so from her family sheep station in northwestern New South Wales, Amelia flies herself out to tend to the animals who completely rely on her. And somehow, between running her practice, working on the farm and raising a young family, Amelia has had time to write a book. It's called The Flying Vet. Hi, Amelia. G'day, Sarah. This name of yours, Amelia, it's got quite the flying pedigree. Yeah, I was named after Amelia Earhart. So, um, yeah, it was kind of uh, expected that I should uh, take up flying, especially when both my dad and my granddad were pilots. How young do you remember being in a plane? Oh, pretty young. Um, my my dad uh, flew and still flies quite a lot. And, and to us, flying was a bit like riding a bike or... Um, driving a car. It was, it's something that we've relied on. We have to rely on it to for for our way of life. What was it like as a kid being in a plane with your dad? Oh, it was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just... Um, How much cigarette oh, you know, smoke was there in that oh, cabin? Oh, yeah, yeah, cabins. Oh, back then, you know, early 90s, no one, no one knew about the real dangers of cigarette smoke. So we're just, yeah, shrouded with yeah, smog from the cigarette fumes. And I used to get quite, quite sick in the plane, mainly because of the smell of avgas and smoke around us, not because of the actual sensation. I love the sensation of flying, but, oh, yeah, the cigarette smoke. Wow. And did he take up much space inside the plane? Yeah, he's a big fella. He's six foot four. Um, <laughs> They're little planes that you fly around in. <laughs> and, and oh, the plane's a little bit smaller than a, a car on the inside. It's a four-seater. It's a... So what we grew up flying in was a Cessna 172, but they're actually quite spacious. Um, they're not quite as compact as, as a lot of little mustering planes that you see nowadays, like the Fox Bats that are, that are getting around that are significantly smaller than a Cessna. When you're six foot four, you probably need a, a plane that you can stretch <laughs> out in a little bit. And what about your granddad? What sort of reputation did he have as a pilot? Well, he's a good pilot. I mean, he lived to an old age, so that's that's a good indicator of how capable he was with the flying. Um, but he liked to pull jokes quite a lot. Yeah, he'd quite often he'd put a fake flap um, lever in the middle between what? the passenger seat and the pilot seat and as he's coming down to land he'd tell the passenger oh just rip on that um, lever for me and they'd pull it off up of course and then there'd be these cords hanging from it 
<laughs> That's, That's an elaborate a... joke, an elaborate <laughs> and a cruel joke to play yeah, on a passenger. Yeah, yeah especially when the the um, yeah the the flap is actually electronic on a little switch on the Cessna. So you know, he really was playing with them quite a bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> How would he communicate with people on the ground during mustering? Because this was he was flying in the yeah. days before UHF radio. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the sixties and seventies, what he'd do is he'd um, write little notes or make a little mud map on a on a piece of paper and wrap it around a, a rock or something and then just drop it out the window, um, which, yeah, so mustering would have taken a lot longer because you'd have the poor bloke on the ground, run, you know, trotting his horse around trying to find where this where this white rock landed. And hopefully not getting knocked on the head in, in the midst of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, also they used to do lunch drops. Um, so granddad would get, um, you know, everything came in mostly in glass bottles or tins those days and you'd drop it from the plane and because we've got soft, sandy ground, you can drop one of those glass Coke bottles out and it won't break. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, flying was important right from the start. What What about animals? What are your early memories of animals on the farm? Oh, um, being on a cattle, sheep, and now we run goats as well. Um, yeah, surrounded by animals all the time and our life revolved around them. Um, always had work dogs, a house dog, cat, horses. Uh, my family are, are horse mad. Uh, so that's been passed down through the generations. Um, we'd be probably a lot uh, more financially well off if we didn't have the hobbies we have. We like planes and horses. They're not very, not very economical hobbies. Or you've hobbies got to throw in his yachts or something, Amelia. Yeah. You'd have the trifecta. Yeah. So yeah. what were conditions like, though, on the farm when you were a kid? Uh, fairly dry. So when I was a youngster um, in the the 90s, we were going through one of one of the worst droughts and... And to be honest, I um, mark my life based on all the droughts, I think. I just remember each, we've had about three quite bad droughts in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then, yeah, the most recent one in the 2017, 2019. And what did um, that mean for, say, the animals on the farm and what you witnessed as a kid? Yeah, a lot of a lot of death and starvation, um, yeah, as, as happens with droughts. Were there vets able to come out to the property and, and help during that? No. Yeah, I grew up um, not really seeing any, any vets, uh, Sarah. Because you're just I'd... too far, the, the property's too remote? Correct, yeah. There, until, well, until I've come back out here, there, there weren't any vets travelling around the area. There were vets based in, in the main towns like Burke and Broken Hill, um, but for us, well, Burke's about a five-hour drive and Broken Hill's a three-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, and most of the time, if you have an emergency, they, they weren't going to make three-and-a-half hours. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of people, um, we're very good at, um, you know, euthanizing your animals ourselves because that was pretty much the kindest option. Um, so it makes you, makes you sort of um, toughen up fairly fairly well when, <laughs> when, you, when you have those, uh, you know, limited options as a child. And I guess that sort of, and we form the resolve that I'd, I'd like to be able to offer a different option and maybe try and save a few animals. Your brother James was born two years after you. How much mischief did the two of you get up together? Oh, quite a lot. <laughs> what springs quite, to mind? Quite a lot. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Well, whenever we had um, our cousins, we'd have some, some city cousins come to visit to most school holidays and 
yeah, they, they always left with cuts and bruises and eggheads and we were fine. We were used to doing, doing all those silly things that bush kids do. We sort of were pretty much driving ourselves around by the time we're eight, eight years old in a little, in a little Suzuki Jeep. Yeah. So that what you could you could do help out around the farm or what were you well, I think that for was, fun? I think that was the idea, but most often we'd practice doing donuts on the clay pan. <laughs> <laughs> and and when it rained, well that was our first thing. We'd get, you know, a couple couple of mil of rain, we'd go, Oh, those clay pans will be really good to do a few bloody skiddies on in the in the Suzuki Jeep. So <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, that's the worst thing about having a dad that flies because he'd go for a fly to see how, where the rain had fallen and he'd see all these circles on all the clay pans and all. I don't know how they got there. <laughs> so, you know, the country, the bush was your home turf. You knew what was what. But the city, on the other hand, was a strange and foreign place with its own rules and customs. Tell me about a, a family trip to Sizzler in Sydney where James, your oh. brother, was unaware of the proper decorum. Yeah, we don't really get to, uh, when you're, you know, miles away from, from the nearest town or, or lolly shop, you don't really get those kind of treats very often. So we walked into Sizzler and she's all you can eat and this dessert bar with all these goodies and, yeah, anyway, we, we got our food and got the table that was furthest away from the food area and sat down and, oh, there's one missing and... Anyway, this ruckus sort of arises gradually from the front and everyone's laughing and pointing because there's a little boy that's put his head underneath the ice cream machine and pulled the lever and <laughs> then he's too too small to be able to put the lever back into, you know, turn off position and there's ice cream, but he's drowning in ice cream and it's pouring on either side of his cheeks down onto the floor and everyone's just in his... <laughs> Who of us have not wanted to do that? I mean, I, I think it's admirable. <laughs> So, you know, farm, your farm and your family and the animals there was um, such a happy, safe, joyful childhood. What did you miss most about that life when you were sent off to boarding school in year six? Yeah, it's completely different when you go to boarding school. There's, I mean, we, had, we did have rules growing up and, and followed them, but there's a lot more rules when you go to the city and... Yeah, traffic. We never had to. Worry. I've never had to worry about traffic in my life before. I went to boarding school, and suddenly you come to a road, and oh, Jesus! All these cars whizzing past. Because <laughs> what had school been like on the farm? We did school of the air, um, so distance education, and we didn't have computers really like like they do now. But um, we did it all over the over the radio. So, so, so would you and James sit in the same room, or what was the setup? Y- yes, we would. Yeah, we just had a little. Echo Hut, that was our, our schoolroom. Were you equally studious? No, no, no. I was the studious one and James was not. He would rather be anywhere else except stuck inside in a room. He, yeah. Well, at, at school, at boarding school, you really had your head down and your bum up because, as you'd say, you'd, you'd had this dream to become a vet and you were determined to get into vet science, which you did heading off to Gatton in Queensland. But tell me, Amelia, what happened in your family at the end of your first year at university? Yeah, so, um, yeah, my brother turned 18 and then exactly a week later uh, he died in a, in a car accident just outside of Whitecliffs, um, doing pretty much what we'd grown up doing, you know, just um, went out with a few mates and um, having a bit of fun in a, in a car and rolled it over and him and his best mate were thrown out the, the front and, um, yeah, pretty much died. I'm sorry, that must have yeah. been such a terrible time for your family. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, pretty rude. 
rude shock. And I think that really marked, even though I was, you know, 20 and, and had been a young adult for a little bit, um, it really marked the end of my childhood and a fairly big step in, um, yeah, changing mm. into an adult, I guess, yeah. Did you consider not going back to university in that January? No, not really. Um, I knew that if I didn't go back, I'd just fall in a hole and, and um, yeah, keep being pretty depressed. So, yeah, after a short time of, of grieving, yeah, I went back to uni. Um, pretty tough year of uni that year. You got through it and went on to finish your vet degree. Where did you look for work after you'd graduated? Yeah, I just applied for a heap of jobs and then did a bit of a, a circuit, a very long circuit home <laughs> down to Victoria and, and a few other places. And um, I'd applied for a job and hadn't, oh, I'd talked to them and they, I hadn't really heard back and they sort of said, oh, it was a manager that I was speaking to. When I spoke to him, I thought, oh, he doesn't really seem like he understands, well, you know, he doesn't seem very proactive. But anyway, I was like, oh, well, I'm going through that town anyway. I'm just going to stop and and say g'day, what have I got to lose? Anyway, I walked in there and said g'day and <laughs> they were pretty excited, the you know, vets that were there were pretty excited to have a chat to me and another another Sarah that was a vet at the practice um, ended up being my interviewer and I just, she, she and I gelled really well. Anyway, I got the job. Um, apparently the manager didn't want another young blonde vet. <laughs> so all the interview, all the vets that they came to interview were all uh, blonde and yeah, I was like, oh, well, well what, what's not my problem? <laughs> I can't help, can't help that. It's not, not so relevant with the arm up a cow's bum, I imagine. No, but. no, no. Anyway, it was quite quite good that I timed my interview and just, you know, winged it when I did because if he'd interviewed me, I probably wouldn't have got the job. And it can uh, be such a glamorous profession being a vet. For instance, uh, Amelia, how did you come by the nickname Dr Pooh? Oh, yeah, <clears throat> I had a few incidences. So I ended up living with the with the vet that interviewed me. Ended up living in her cottage on their dairy farm, and uh, I became very close to her family. Still, still am to this day. Uh, and there's when I was on call for a weekend, I'd often just stay stay at home and do a bit of gardening or do a few odd jobs around. And um, this particular day, where we were making some veggie patches, and one of the farm workers was driving the tractor to fill up the cut down tanks with um, cattle manure for us. He was driving over this, what well, I didn't realise, but driving over the septic tank. Anyway, I finished that job and and next thing the ground caved underneath me and I was swimming in my own feces. <laughs> There's no good spin to put on that. No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's amazing that you were single, Amelia, but on a dare with a friend from vet school, you joined Tinder. And I bet there's uh, a lot of farmers who see a single vet as a real catch. I mean, talk about friends with benefits. Yeah. Um, a lot of... A lot of People normally put their, I don't know, how Tinder's probably evolved quite a lot in the last 10 years since I last used it, but um, you can set your radius. And at the time I made my radius, the further the better. So if they were, in, if they were within my client range, they were automatically not going to 
go on a date with me because I knew that they'd more likely be looking at how useful I could be and not, <laughs> you know, thinking that I might be um, a nice person. So, <laughs> so yeah, I met, the, met this bloke from near Shepparton and went well, on a few dates with tell him. Me, and... Tell me about your first sight of this bloke from Shepparton. I was on call and I thought, okay, well, he decided he was going to come and visit me. I was like, oh, no worries, well, I'm on call, but you can come and spend the day with me if you like. And the clink I was at had a really nice cafe next to it, so... You know, we'll meet for lunch and we'll go to this cafe. And anyway, I'm sitting in the in the vet clinic with the doors locked because so I thought, well, if he turns up and he looks really feral, I'm just going to pretend I was suddenly called out and I'm not here. And he, he turns up in a purple V8 Ford Falcon ute. And I'm looking at this ute and I'm like, oh, okay, right. Uh, and he gets out and he actually looked quite presentable. I was like, okay, well, he's just redeemed himself a little bit. And I was sitting there for a few minutes watching him get out of the car and, you know, he's making sure his hair's neat. And I'm like, well, he is taking a bit of pride in his appearance. And he's not a complete feral, but the ute, the ute's a bit of a... Bit of know. a red flag, is it? Red flag. Purple V8. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was, there was no stealth mode when he was coming to visit me after after he finished his his shift at the SBC factory at midnight. I tell you what, they all knew they all knew when my boyfriend was coming coming through town. <laughs> what was your one non-negotiable when it came to a partner? Uh, I I needed someone that was going to want to come out to the middle of nowhere with me. Mm. You know, that, I discussed that very on in our relationship. I said now. I'm actually not going to stay here forever. I'm going back to the family property and you can either come or go. <laughs> well, you, first time you took Brendan out to the family property, what scare did you, your dad give him? We were, we were um, ferrying some machinery across to, a, to a, another property for a friend to, to borrow. So we drove, we drove the machinery. Brendan and I drove separate machinery over to this property and Dad flew his plane to pick us up. Anyway, Brennan's sitting in the back seat and I'm in the front. And um, when I was a kid, I used to love the feeling of falling or dipping. And you can make a plane do do that sensation by sort of very gently making the plane come up on an incline and then suddenly dipping the nose down. And you get that little, you know, feel of a bit of a fall. And, it, and it, yeah, no, it, it's... For me, it's a, it's an exciting sensation, but for those that aren't used to flying, <laughs> I can imagine it's quite terrifying. Anyway, Dad and I are flying along and, and he looks at me and gives me a wink and then starts making the plane go up an incline and I'm just sitting there like a little, like, you know, going back to my childhood days, I knew it was going to happen, so I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and then we both sort of smiled and then looked at Brendan because we were like, oh, well, let's, we'll see what happens here. <laughs> anyway, when he dipped the nose, Brendan com- com- completely panicked and he's hit, you know, punched his hand up into the roof and knocked a bit of plastic off a light cover and gone white as a ghost. And Dad's, Dad's looked by and gone, now you remember that. <laughs> You treat Amelia right or I'm taking you back up here. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, it was time now for you yourself to learn how to fly. What's the hardest part to master in learning to fly? Uh, Probably getting the finances to do it. Um, (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) No. uh, um, Yeah, I... I, Yeah, the the biggest marker of of when you're flying is is doing your first solo. Um, That's a big... 
that's a big goal to reach. And what do you um, remember about your first solo flight? Uh, well, I remember, you know, we're doing because you do circuits for ages. The circuits are, are where you take off and land and do the the landing pattern over and over and over again at the airport. Very repetitive, very boring, and and you do that for the first twenty odd hours of of learning to fly. Anyway, um, yeah, another day of doing circuits, and next thing we land and the we're sort of taxiing along, and the instructor's like, "Right, I'm getting out." Off you go. See you in a few circuits. So, yeah, that's, that's exciting when they step out and you realise you're alone and, and that's all exciting. And then you take off and you've got that thrill and exhilaration of actually doing it on your own. And, and then you go, oh, crap, okay, we've actually, this is, this is you know, this is pretty serious. We're on our own. We better, <laughs> better make sure we do this right. Yeah. Well, you'd managed to get your pilot's licence. So the next step, of course, towards your goal of becoming a flying vet was to get your own plane. Tell me about the aircraft that came into your life. A good family friend of ours, he had a, a Piper Arrow, which is now my Piper Arrow, um, and he bought a twin-engine aircraft. He'd always wanted a twin-engine because they go faster. And, and um, but as he's as he's learnt since then, they're actually they might they might be twice as fast, but they're also twice as dear to maintain and fuel. So he's regretting selling me that that Piper Arrow, saying how much more economical it was. But um, yeah, I bought it. Bought it for a fairly good price back when um, when planes were sort of fairly low in value and there were more planes and pilots. Tell me about it. I've never been in a Piper. What's it like to fly in a Piper Arrow? Oh, that's great, especially when you own it. It's really good. <laughs> uh, they're a, a similar. It's a similar size internally to what a, a Cessna is. It's got four reasonably okay, comfortable seats to sit in. Uh, and it's got low wings that come out sort of from the mid of mid to low part of the body, and the the type of plane that I've got has retractable wheels, so the wheels tuck up once you take off, and um, you go a little bit a fair bit faster than you do in a Cessna. It's um it's a bit like driving a Maserati after <laughs> after driving a little Corolla, you know. Do you point that out to your dad? Do you? This Quite is often. my Maserati versus. Yeah, yeah. we we have we're not competitive in my family at all. No, I'm I'm picking that up. What no. what what colour is your Pipe Arrow? Oh well, it's slowly turning silver because it's in desperate need of a paint job. It's quite you know um, on trend in the furniture world. It's white crackle <laughs> with a with a with a fading blue and white stripe down the side of it. And I figure if I just keep flying it, it'll eventually just you know rub itself back, and it'll save me a little bit of labour costs when I when I do eventually. It's, it's shabby chic in the sky. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> Once you had your plane, it meant that you and Brendan were ready to move back to your family property on the traditional lands of the Wanjawalgu and Burundi people in western New South Wales. You described earlier, Amelia, how remote that property is, how far it is from, you know, other towns, other people. What are the good things about that isolation for you? What do you like about it? There's so much to like about it, Sarah. Um, it's uh, because of the isolation out there, um, the community really does come together um, when it's needed, uh, and most people, uh, most people out there, are good people. They're very hospitable, warm and welcoming, supportive, and and that's what I've found. What we've we've found moving back to that area, um, they've been very supportive of our family, my business. Yeah, it, it's it's quite humbling just how much support we've mm. we've had. 
Your dad and stepmom were living on the property too when you arrived. So where did you and Brendan set up your home? Um, so we have two houses on the property. The original house um, that Dad and Sue lived in at the time, it was built at the end of the wool boom, back when wool was worth huge money. Um, so that house was built then and it was a, it is a monstrosity of a house. And then um, a few years ago we put a little transportable house about half a kilometre from the main house because Dad sort of foresaw that there'd be two families living out there and it'd be handy to have a smaller smaller house for for a young couple or for eventually when Dad sort of semi-retires and we'll switch switch houses, which we have done. Mm. Um, yeah, a lot's happened in the last 12 months. I've had a baby. We've switched houses. <laughs> I've renovated the, the main house. <laughs> so you're, yeah. you're the king of the manor now. You're the queen of the manor, hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, back when you when you were starting, it was um, in between working for your dad on the farm that you could start building your own mobile vet practice. Tell me about some of the logistics of that. Like, what's the best time of day to fly? In this part of the world, first thing, just on dawn, um, before it gets warm, because um, there's no not that many thermals and the air's nice and smooth. And it's nice and cool. There's there's no air conditioning in my aircraft. It's the base base model. It came without air conditioning, so so it's uh yeah that's the best time of day to, to fly. Yeah. And what's it like being up in the sky as the dawn's breaking? Oh, just magical. That's the the word for it. Yeah, you take off and you're not attached to anything else, and you just it's a bit like floating on on an ocean. You know, um, beautiful and calm and. Um, you're watching the sun come up and, yeah, you kind of forget that you're actually working. Um. <laughs> and are you looking on the ground or are you looking at the sky? What's your, what's your focus on? Well, if I'm taking off, I'm looking at the airspeed indicator and making sure <laughs> I'm not going to stall, Sarah. Um, How poetic, but once, once, I get, once I get up high enough and level, then I start looking around. Um, yeah. <laughs> Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Amelia, how challenging is it to navigate in the kind of country that you fly around in? For those that aren't used to it, it can be very challenging. I mean, you learn how to navigate based on on landmarks and if you're not used to looking out for certain landmarks, it can be very challenging to recognise what you're looking at. Um, It's a lot easier to navigate in that inland, inside country where, where you've got a town every five kilometres and you can be like, oh, you know, that all matches up with those roads and those patterns and that's definitely that town. Whereas out here you sort of you're more looking at, oh, that's that mountain range and yeah, that that's the same shape as this mountain that I'm flying over and or the they're not mountains out here, they're sand hills. Um <laughs> but that that's what you're more looking at. And the and the creek, you know, the creek, dry creek beds and you're more looking at a line of trees and going, Yep, that's a that's a creek. But um so the- <laughs> ignorant question I have is can't you use GPS? You can, yeah, you definitely can. But GPS isn't always accurate. It can be a couple of miles out or sometimes it just completely 
can just blank out too. Sometimes those GPSs don't like the heat. Well, satellites have little blips. You can't always rely on technology. So you've got to go back to the old map map and, um, you know, map brain. and pen. And, be- <laughs> and brain, yes, use your own brain. Um, and it is important to always be cross-checking as well. Yeah. Is it possible to land on every property that you get a call out to? No. So well-maintained airstrips are few and far between. <laughs> um, you generally know that if, if the people or the property uses the airmail service or has a flying doctor clinic come to it regularly, that their airstrip's going to be well-maintained. But I'm always checking whenever I fly to a new place, oh, you know, what's your airstrip like? How long since it was graded? Um, it's quite common for, for a fair few clients of mine. Um, they don't really regularly use the airstrip, but they'll often grade it or drag it the day before I come just to make sure it's good. My plane, because it has an, a relatively fragile undercarriage, um, yeah, I've really got to make sure those airstrips are, are suitable for landing on. And once you're there, Amelia, is it usually to see one animal or, or do you get through a bunch? What happens typically? Yeah, I get to see everything and anything, you know. Oh, the, the uh, oh, while you're here. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah you know, might, you might, usually I'm going there to do preg testing or, or Brousseau testing on rams, but, you know, you end up vaccinating a few dogs or looking at a horse or, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real range of things that, that you do. So I often throw a, throw a few things in the in the box just to make sure I've got most bases covered. And what kind of hospitality are you usually shown on those properties? Oh, excellent. It's 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 a big thing. Like most most of the places I go to they have children and um, you know it's it's pretty cool seeing seeing the vet fly in. So you know you get these kids that are waving to you as you as you're landing and you're thinking, oh gee, don't don't stuff it up. Make sure you <laughs> make sure you look <laughs> get it get it down and make it look good. Yeah, that's always pretty cool. You get kids normally climbing all over the plane wanting to have a look in it and help help being very helpful at wanting to get your gear out for you. <laughs> and what about morning tea or smoko? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, bush hospitality is always the best. There's always they always, you know, put on a pretty good spread. So um, don't don't eat too much the day before because you normally get a good feed when you go there. Yeah. Some of the animals that you look after are much bigger than you. That was the case with a bull that you were asked to castrate. How do you do that procedure and keep yourself safe at the same time? Um, with a good cattle crush, it's a steel structure that they walk into and it can um, squeeze around them just to restrict their movement and you can catch their head to stop them from moving forward or back. And that normally allows you enough enough control over the animal to be able to, to get sedation into it to make them a lot more docile. And how yeah. do you do that sedation? Usually in the tail vein. You can, um, you know, get, get them in the in the jugular vein, but it's a lot easier in the tail. And do they react cattle. when they feel that needle? Like, is that a dangerous yeah, moment? Yeah, they, they normally sort of, you know, yeah, jostle around. But there's a fair good, fairly good reason why a lot of vets are scared of large animals. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah they do jostle around a bit, but you know, when you're used to it and you're used to handling large animals, it's um, you know it's not that bad. It's a lot, it's a lot safer doing it the way I do it than the way they still do it 
in those real isolated areas uh, in the Northern Territory in Western Australia when they, you know, <laughs> you use a car and throw them over. And you've got you've got equipment there to help. So tell me yeah. about this bull. Like, was that an unusual job to castrate a bull of that of a big size? Like yes. How big was it? Yes. <laughs> Oh, he was a he was a yearling, so he was oh, probably about two hundred and fifty kilos. I'd say he was a fairly solid fella. And the family that I did this for, they know they they're going to know exactly. <laughs> and I I have to be careful what I say, but someone was asked to put a ring on this bull when he was a bit younger and a bit smaller. And anyway, the ring didn't quite do the right job. But they won't yes. be shamed on the national yeah, radio. No. No, I'll wait till I see them at the pub. Um, (laughs) So anyway, it hadn't quite done the job or the ring had failed. So then, uh, you know, he was too big and the owner was, you know, they were pretty attached to him because they managed to get him through the drought and he'd been a potty calf and they'd fed him through the drought. So, you know, the thought of him going through any kind of discomfort because they couldn't really handle that thought and the fact that he'd probably been in a fair bit of discomfort with this ring around his testicles that hadn't really worked so they sort of thought oh we'll do the right thing and we'll do a nice job of it and there's not going to be any more pain so um yeah this bull that was probably only worth buddy two hundred dollars had a four hundred dollar vet bill to castrate it but we won't tell won't tell that person's family about that either um (laughs) now you'll be surprised that i'm not familiar with the process of castrating a yearling bull but you put a ring around its testicles generally when when they're under six months of age you can you can either cut them with a knife and and do that or you can put a, a ring around and it'll restrict the blood flow and eventually the whole the testicles and the scrotum will drop off. And how big though by the by a yearling? What size testicles are we talking? Oh yeah, so so normally when you when you're castrating a little bull calf, their little testicles are no bigger than a golf ball. Uh, but when you're castrating a yearling, they're about the size of a AFL football. Um, <laughs> so much bigger job and yeah, not not as easy to do so you definitely need some medication and a, and a good a handling facility and some sedation and then you need pain relief as well because it's that's a bit more involved and you're dealing dealing with a lot more blood vessels when they're bigger as well and a, a strong stomach on the part of the vet but you and and the bull survived yeah. um <laughs> in terms of your own family farm tell me how you got your dad to finally install his new cattle crush so we had this Cattle crush, it was from the Stone Age <laughs> and probably it was about, you know, it was an OH&S risk and uh, our agent at the time stirred Dad up at a at a, a charity auction. Anyway, Dad, Dad eventually was the winner on, on this cattle crush that was at a charity auction and then it, it came to home and it got plonked on the flat next to the cattle yards. <laughs> so we had this brand new wonderful crush Sitting next to the cattle yards for several years, just in its box or you know whatever. It oh comes no, no, in just on crate. the just on the pallet, on right. yeah, on the on the ground, just for show, you know. And <laughs> um, and I I cracked it. I'd only been home a few weeks, and I cracked it. So I went down to to the cattle yards with the loader and the bobcat and started pulling dirt out and <laughs> cutting away at at the old crush with an angle grinder and. Um, just yeah, destroying half, it. Yeah, just yourself. Yeah, it was very cathartic. And then within half a day of me starting that, there, of course, this is all the all bush women will know. If you want a job done properly, start it haphazardly. 
and just go hell for leather. And eventually the men will come running because they'll be in a panic about how you're about to just completely destroy everything and it'll get done. And that's what happened with the new cattle crush. Yeah. <laughs> Before you knew it, the new pad, cement pad for it had been boxed up and the cement had been poured and it was, yeah, put in properly. Well done. It's not um, practical to fly to all the clients that you see. So once a month or so, you head out on a road trip covering around 3,500 kilometres. What do you carry in your ute on that journey? What would I find if I opened the back door? Oh, everything. It's a, it's a full pharmacy, um, uh, surgical equipment, scalpels, syringes, needles, I have a portable x-ray machine and an ultrasound and an oxygen generator. Yeah. One of the things that you say you have in the back is a a power float. What's that used for? So that is a very nice machine that makes my life a lot easier for doing horse dentals. Yeah, it's a a horse dental machine um, to help uh, make the job of filing down horses' teeth a a lot quicker and easier. Why do horses need their teeth filed down? Not necessarily all horses need it, but especially horses that are kept, like we, we keep them, in, in a yard on hard feed and, and ridden, they often will get um, malocclusions and sharp points. And when you're riding them, it's really obvious because they don't like, they don't like the bit in their mouth or they don't want to turn one way because it hurts with the, with the bit rubbing there. So, yeah, quite often horses that are being ridden need, need their teeth checked and, and filed back to make it more comfortable for them and the, and the rider. You've also had to do the odd spot of human surgery over the years, including on yourself. What happened one day when you were uh, doing some gardening? Oh, yeah, so we had a heap of rain and I was pretty excited and thought, oh, well, I'll get into the garden and start planting some trees and I'm not very uh, uh, coordinated and quite clumsy, so I tripped and drove my knee straight through a stake and uh, yeah, I looked down and thought, oh, well, that's about yeah, an inch long and half an inch deep, and that probably needs a stitch. And, hmm. So, and I didn't re well, it was a bit too wet to, to drive into town or fly into town. I didn't really want to do that. So, so I sat down and I thought, oh, well, <clears throat> looks like I'll have to give this a go myself. I've got all the gear, we'll be right. And I poised myself with the, the local to inject into, into the skin around this cut, and I thought, oh, don't know if I can inject myself. So I thought, no, I'll just ring Dad. He's done because my dad has has had a lot of surgery in his life and I thought he'd be fairly well desensitised to, to needles and sharp objects. I was like, oh, he'll be right. He can just inject this in for me and then I should be right from there. As long as someone else can inject me, I'll be okay. Anyway, he comes comes up to my little house and I sterilise his hands and give him the injection and then he's shaking about... 10 times worse than I was. And I thought, well, no, you can't go injecting me. This isn't going to work. Give me that needle. <laughs> and anyway, so I've sat down. I'm going, well, I'm like, seeing as you're not going to be any help putting this local in, how about you pour us a couple of straight rums? That'd be really handy. <laughs> and then he couldn't even watch while I was doing my own surgery. I said, so oh, he's like, uh, he's, I said, oh, you're not going to watch? He's like, hell no. I'm like, okay, well, you just sit with your back to me. And make sure I don't faint while I'm doing this. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, managed I managed it. to I managed to do it. It was quite quite interesting, actually. I learned a lot of things um, about doing surgery on on people and myself, and 
local actually doesn't sting that much if you put it in very small amounts very slowly. Yeah. It, it was a professional development opportunity, Amelia. Yeah, yeah I call it a learning, learning opportunity. <laughs> you said earlier that you sort of mark your life by the periods of drought and when you and Brendan moved out to your family property, it was in the midst of a terrible drought. What was the day like when the rains finally came? Oh, it was it, yeah, um, just relieving. Just that's the word you use because we all, being a, a farming community, grazing community, most businesses are, are reliant on that out where we are, and you know you all know that you're going to be able to to continue on the business and keep your families going and you know pay the bills. So. It, it's, it's yeah, so, so many emotions in one when it finally rains after drought. Does it turn you into a bit of a kid again? Oh, yes, yes. Everyone's a kid. Anyone that watches Landline or um, has seen the videos after the drought breaks, there's always farmers running around without many clothes on in the, <laughs> in the rain and the mud. <laughs> and we, that's what we've grown up doing, you know, as kids, you know. If, it was, if it's a rainy day, that's what you do. You run around without any clothes on, you play in puddles and same thing happens when you're an adult, you know. You get getting a certain amount of rain, you've got to go out there and play without any clothes on. <laughs> the fact that the rains came and, and filled the lake on your property, it meant that you and Brendan were able to have your wedding day the way you, you wanted and you even had a flying padre, which seems appropriate for you. Yeah, so yeah, we had um, David, our local flying padre, come, come and officiate the wedding and lake full of water as our backdrop. Uh, yeah, it was pretty special. And where was the reception? We ended up going to the uh, to the local rodeo grounds and having the the wedding out at the yeah the the rodeo grounds at Wycliffe's. Sounds like a fun night. It was it was a great night. I um, yeah we thoroughly enjoyed it. And the next morning uh, we stayed at the accommodation at the pub. And the next morning we got up early and we we didn't really have a change of clothes with us. <laughs> Rookie mistake as <laughs> new, new married new couple. So we just put our, our wedding outfits on and went from door to door and tried to see if I I was trying to see if I could sell my wedding dress. <laughs> <laughs> and we found um, <clears throat> one of our friends came in their ball running car and they had a a trough broom in there and an esky, which was really good. So we helped ourselves to the esky and got the trough broom out and then was offering everyone a good scrub for the next morning with the trough broom. (laughs) (laughs) One town you visit in your flying driving vet practice is Tibberborough in far west New South Wales. And the animal that caused you the biggest headache there, it wasn't a bull or a cow or a horse, but a, a cockatoo. He was. He's a. He was a a, a well known. <laughs> so, uh, well, he would have been the first sight that any tourist would have seen when they came into Tibbaburra, at the at the fuel station, um, and uh, yeah, he uh, had a good repertoire of swear words, and the cage that he chilled out in um, was covered in signs saying "Do not touch, cranky, cocky," <laughs> and despite all the signs around the cage, of course. You know, everyone would try to see their luck at being able to put a finger in and out without it being chewed off. There's not many, not many people that survived that incident. <laughs> and what was wrong with this fierce cockatoo? Why did they want a vet to come and see him? Oh, so he got a uh, an abscess on his on his neck, and yeah. Anyway, I knew I knew old Barney's reputation fairly well, and um, 
I knew that he was going to have to be anaesthetised. So How do you anaesthetise a dangerous cockatoo? Well, with a lot of difficulty. Um, so we, when I got there, he was in his usual cage out the front and I sort of said to the owners of the shop, I'm like, well, this isn't going to be such a good look for me to do this in front of everyone at the front of town. Peak tourist time as well. <laughs> I said, we need to go somewhere where we kind of, you know, Preferably a soundproof padded room, <laughs> somewhere we're not we're not going to have all the tourists seeing what I'm doing, and and it's not going to become you know a YouTube sensation. It'd be really good. Um, so anyway, we had put Barney in in a in a reasonably enclosed room that if he escaped on us, we'd still be able to you know retrieve him. Um, and then yeah, his owner was uh, trying to convince me that he'd be able to get him on his hand and put a tin over his head and that would be sufficient restraint. And I said, oh, I don't think that's going to be quite good enough. I'm like, oh, you can try it. We'll just give this a go. And even for that, he was wearing the welding gloves as well. And I thought, this, this isn't going well. So anyway, after he tried several times with this tin, I'd... And, um, would he put the tin, would the owner put the tin on the head or did Barney put the tin on his head? No, no, no. Well, Barney would sort of nibble at the tin and then the owner would flick it over his head was the idea. So he's kind of going to be like Ned Kelly, uh, <laughs> the bird version. Uh, but, it, yeah, Barney knew what, what was happening and he was, and wasn't having a bar of this tin being flipped over the top of his head. So, so anyway, <laughs> we put, put Barney back in his cage and I just got a great big plastic bag and made a... Um, pretty much made a, a gas down chamber and then fed the the um, anaesthetic gas hose into the into the cage and just waited 10 minutes until he didn't hear Barney squawking and then he was you know anesthetized how so co- that I could actually handle him how long have you got when a bird's anesthetized i mean what's the danger not there? very not very long because you're pumping quite a, a high amount of anaesthetic gas in there and they're very quick at metabolizing so it's a fine line between knocking them out too much and and knocking them out just enough that you can actually get them out and then put a mask directly over their airways and then dial down the anaesthetic just enough so it's not too much. So, yeah, you've got to be quite quick and well organised and we managed to we managed to do that and I managed to do a little surgery on Barney and open up his abscess with a scalpel and um, and give him some medications to make him feel a bit more comfortable and then put him back in his cage and I managed to handle Barney and trim all his nails and trim his feathers and I didn't get bitten. Everything turned out okay and no yeah. tourist was harmed in the... Exactly. No tourist was harmed. <laughs> I wasn't on a YouTube channel. Um, Peter haven't gone, gone hell for leather on me. I'm going well. <laughs> a few years ago, Amelia, you became pregnant with your first child and appropriately enough, you had to call on uh, the RFDS... Yes, so um, we were due to go into town the, ne- the next morning and I was all packed, all my bags at the front door. Brendan was watching the football on the Friday night. I don't really watch the footy. And um, anyway, next thing, hmm, I think something's happening. Yeah, yep, sure enough, yep. Oh, no, I think we need to go to town right now. <laughs> this is not a false alarm. <laughs> and anyway, so Brendan grabs my bags and puts them in the car and he comes back in and starts packing his bag. <laughs> He wasn't ready. No. And I was like, well, you Brendan. Know, and just calmly, just calmly, you know, slowly putting things in his bag, you know, no no registering that this could be an emergency situation. And I just started laughing because what else can you do, you know, when someone's being so casual and it's all, all happening and nothing is going to plan. 
Anyway, we, we drove into town and I was timing my contractions and I was still able to get out and open the gates on the way to town and close them. So And we got to Wilcannia um, within an hour and this is in the middle of the night, dodging kangaroos and stuff on the on the way to town and anyway, got to Wilcannia and I think they were all amazed that I walked in. They had a buddy, um, a wheelchair ready for me out the out the front and I said, I won't be needing that, thank you, I'm just going to walk in. Like, oh, righto. Anyway, they, they were all... Um, all pretty excited there in the hospital, and anyway, they rang the rang the um, RFDS because they decided it was probably best that we didn't continue driving on into Broken Hill. But Brendan, uh, well, we had the car, so he he was going to drive into Broken Hill, except he had to get fuel first oh. because he didn't have enough fuel to get to Broken Hill with. <laughs> I'm sure that he's been reminded of this. On choice occasion. Oh, well, you know, he hasn't changed. You know, you still get in any car that he's driven in that's still empty. We all reckon he's been flogged with a diesel bowser at some point. <laughs> and you, you in the plane, hey, being flown to, to Broken Hill, was there a part of you that wanted to have that baby on the plane? Yeah, to be honest, I was, it was, um, I was just really happy to get some pain relief and the, that green whistle. I just remember that green whistle being very awesome. And then... All I can remember is, yeah, the contractions getting stronger and stronger and, and um, yeah, the poor flight noise. So he, he thought I was going to have the baby on the plane. And I still remember, clear as crystal, when we landed in Broken Hill and I'm getting wheeled into the ambulance, he high-fived me because I didn't have the kid on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, who did you name your baby daughter after? I named her after the bloke I bought my plane off and the plane. So her name's Lindsay Piper. Perfect. And since then, you've had a you've had a baby boy. Who's he named after? He's named after my brother. So, <laughs> yeah, but I call him Jim Bob. Yeah. So how different is life and and your business now that you've got two little kids running around? Oh yeah, it's a it's a lot to juggle. I think having children has made me reassess what's really important in life. For a long time, I put work and career and study in front of family. And yeah, and now I don't, I put family first. I still run both businesses, but I, I have boundaries now. It must be hard I, for a vet, I reckon, particularly a country vet to have boundaries. It is, it is, but I think it's important. Um, there's quite a large suicide rate in my profession and I believe it's because we're not very good at setting boundaries and we need to start to. What's it like, Amelia, working with your dad and I guess particularly it changing now, you know, like you'd grown up with him being the boss and maybe as he gets older and you've moved into that main house now, has it, has it been a tricky transition at all or what's it like? Oh, it's, yeah, father-daughter relationships are always interesting, aren't they? Fathers will always tell them, uh, tell everyone about how their daughter's bloody hard on them. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're, we're very similar in personality, me and my dad. So we do clash a little bit. Um, ultimately, we have the same ideas and the same goals, but because we're both quite strong-willed, it's you know we like it to be our way. So I've just got to learn to sit back and just slowly drip feed and let him think that it was all his idea, <laughs> and that's how you get through. Yeah, no, um, you know we work fairly well when you when you're doing the succession thing in in a family business. You know, a lot of patience is needed from both sides, um, which I'm slowly learning and I think Dad's learning. Yeah, uh, we love each other dearly and we've got a fairly good life. You know, he's he's got his grandkids 
at home that he can see every day and um, I've got that family support. Yeah, it's it's a great a great relationship that we've got. And the two of you still go flying together? Yes. Yeah. Who, who's in the pilot seat now? Depends whose plane we're in. So we don't sh- we don't share a plane. We've each got our own plane. <laughs> so if we're in my plane, I'm the boss, and if we're in his plane, he's generally the boss. Yeah. Fair mm. enough, Amelia. It's been just so great to meet you and hear about about your life. Thank you so much for being our guest on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.